This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. I'm Sarah Carradine, podcasting from unceded Gadigal land, and this is Inside Job, bonus content for subscribers to the Crime Scene feed. You can subscribe at robhasawebsite.com forward slash crime feed to get your true crime on Tuesdays, as well as bonus content like this. Inside Job brings you conversations with people who know crime, the law and justice from the inside. If you have a story to tell, you can message us on Twitter at Crime Scene RHAP, that's scene, S-E-E-N, or email us at crimescenerhap at gmail.com. This week on Inside Job, the abolitionist. I'm honoured to speak today with human rights advocate Debbie Kilroy, OAM. Debbie, welcome to Inside Job. Thank you for having me. More than my pleasure. I want to uh, let listeners know a little bit about your background. You earned a social work degree in prison and you've since qualified as a lawyer, established your own law firm. You're the CEO of Sisters Inside, the prisoner advocacy program, and your Free Her campaign has raised almost $1.3 million. And for our overseas listeners, the letters after your name, OAM, are for Order of Australian Medal that you receive for services to the community. I think where so, I'd like to start today is to, to acknowledge where I am on unceded stolen land here in Mianjin, and I'd like to acknowledge the elders, past and present, of uh, the Turugur and Yagawa people. Um, and as I said, uh, sovereignty was never ceded, and uh, I need to uh, acknowledge that. Um, first and foremost, because that is a huge part of the work that we undertake here in this community with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women and girls and their families and their children. Thank you for that. So decarceration, why? What is it? And how do we achieve it? Okay. So as a prison abolitionist, so and when I say that, I mean abolishing the prison industrial complex. So that's about any of the tentacles that use a carceral strategy or policy or response to any type of behaviour um, by the state or anyone else for that matter. So it could be social workers, it could be police, it could be prison officers, it could be the so-called child protection officers um, by removing babies from their mothers to put them in 
um, state care. So any carceral mechanism we oppose, and that's all captured within the, the broader um, description as the prison industrial complex. So um, to abolish the prison industrial um, complex, there needs to be strategies and uh, a plan how to get to abolition, right? So uh, we use the language of decarceration. So anything that we do action-wise is from the position of decarceration. So any of our actions, we think very clearly about what our actions are and how we're going to support a woman or a young woman or a girl or their children or their families and to ensure that what we're doing is decarceration. So that's about ensuring first and foremost that women and girls and their children and families aren't criminalised and imprisoned in the first instance. And when I talk about that, I mean any type of imprisonment, so uh, using any type of carceral mechanism. So, for example, mothers who have been criminalised and imprisoned and may be pregnant, um, that their children aren't removed by the state when they're born. So we intervene and fight so that doesn't actually happen. So it's about women with mental illnesses, that they not actually go through a process of the court system so where they're held in mental health hospitals that's not under their own volition. Um, so they're using different types of cages with different types of names. So anything we do, we have to think about how do we remove women and girls and their children and families away from those carceral mechanisms and work with them in a way of solidarity and advocacy and activism um, so they have an opportunity to inequitable proportions um, that those of us that are more privileged in the community have. And we know that when you walk into a children's prison or an adult prison, we see the um, ongoing genocide um, policies of ongoing invasion of this country through colonisation by the amount of uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that are criminalised and imprisoned. People usually use the language of, for example, over-representation. We use mass incarceration. I use mass incarceration. Because when you talk about over-representation, what you're saying is some representation is okay, and it's not okay. It's not okay for anyone to be locked in a cage. And when we think about decarceration and the journey to the abolition of the prison industrial complex, it's about changing things, and those things are everything as Ruthie Wilson-Gilmore would say very clearly, what needs to be changed? Everything, everything. And, uh, of course, she reminds us always that life is precious, life is precious, yeah. So decarceration, does, does that mean no prisons at all or does it mean not using the prisons as a, as a weapon of oppression and colonisation? Well, it's both really because it goes hand in hand together because we're working towards you know, abolishing the prison industrial complex. So it, the buildings themselves aren't the only issue. It's about all the carceral mechanisms that criminalises and captures and pipelines babies from the time they're born, particularly uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander babies, where they're removed by the state, they're put in so-called care, where we know that that's about um, policing families and they're not getting support. So, for example, you know, babies can be removed from their mother and then they pay a white family raise those babies instead of giving mother, the money to the mothers to raise their own babies, right? So this is about part of the whole prison industrial complex or the um, welfare industry that people are being paid um, on the backs of those most disadvantaged, most marginalised, predominantly here in this country, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women and girls, to make money. 
So it's for white people to pay for their rent or their mortgages or their food on their table, their roof over their heads. It's not money that's given to the families in need so that they can actually be part of society on an equitable basis and given that equity. The racial capitalist world creates a system where you need Aboriginal and Torres Strait women and girls for those others to make money on the backs of through their employment and under the pretense that we're caring and, you know, that they're criminals or they're offenders or they're bad mothers, they're neglectful mothers, where they're the labels that the state, the carceral state gives them, um, where it's actually not true. You know, we all need assistance in our life at any one time or more than one time, but the state doesn't afford that to the most disadvantaged um, people in our communities because of racial gendered violence of the state that's perpetrated against um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women and girls and their children. And at the moment, the thing that seems very present at the moment is the shackling of children and the transfer of them to adult prisons. How is this happening? Um, it's not the first time it ha- has happened and it won't be the last time. You'll see that there's a number of organisations that are also part of the problem um, because they accept the carceral regime. So we even had the National Children's Commissioner, for example, and other organisations go into the adult men's prison to check the cages, that's my language, not their language, to see if what they would be like for the children. They came out and said, well, it's not the best place. We don't hear a, a stance, a, a, we don't hear statements from those that are in the positions handed to them by the state to say that this needs to cease, this needs to be abolished, that cages need to be torn down and no child should be in a cage. What we hear is that, okay, the children have been um, medicated, like sedated, shackled and taken from a children's prison to an adult prison that's been commissioned through a gazette by the state um, to hold them in a men's prison. We don't hear them say that that needs to stop now. We hear them say, oh, we must do something later so it never happens again. I've been around long enough now for enough decades in my life to be on both sides of the cage both sides of the bars, to know that it will continue to happen. It's happened back in the 60s. It'll happen again, you know, in 2060 unless people make a stance. But when they make a stance, they put themselves at risk and they don't want to do that because it's easier to pretend and to be reformists and rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic than actually stop the sinking of the Titanic and actually um, use decarceration strategies to end. You know, like I've been in contact with the legal profession about what's happening for those children because I'm on the other side of the country, right, and they're on the western side, on the eastern coast. And so we've been talking over here what's actually happening for those children legally. Um, There should be lawyers, QCs, barristers in the Supreme Court asking for injunctions and stop this happening, but there, there aren't those people in the courts doing that. And we're even thinking about do we need to travel across the country and do that work? Because other organisations that are engaged with the children on a one-on-one basis are dealing with more their substantive matters, so the offences that they're in custody for. So one child was granted bail, so he's now out, but there's still 16 other children there. Some have been sentenced, some are on bail. So, um, But everything's being dealt with in a silo, and this is an issue. Um, When we know that the prison industrial complex doesn't operate in a silo, it ha- it's huge, it has many tentacles, and the do-gooders in the world, like those NGOs, like those social workers, are all part of those tentacles that use and speak of reformist language and they are one of the biggest parts of the problem 
in this in this whole area of work. Um, they need to come on board and understand and be active in the process of abol- abolishing the prison industrial complex. Um, reform agenda is uh, what's what was the commencement of this so-called country called Australia through invasion by bringing the so-called people charged with criminal offences in England to come here. And, you know, and we know that the outcome of that has been ongoing genocide of uh, First Nations people in this country and it's still ongoing now through the state apparatus using racial gendered violence against First Nations people. So the do-good of white people, the colonisers, as I am one, we actually need to decolonise ourselves and we actually need to, to understand, and I'm sure plenty of people do that are in the positions of power because they're not uneducated people, they're educated people, but they don't want to give up their white privilege and step aside to stop the ongoing cages, ongoing caging of those young children. And the reason why that they don't, and I use the royal they, they in, in the sense that it's because it keeps them in jobs, right? It's ongoing because those children are now being pipelined into the adult system literally and then when they turn the age as an adult, they'll be released into the broader adult men's population. So we're just creating the same old, like the merry-go-round of incarceration and caging people so that people generate their wealth and their privilege more so in positions of power on the backs of those children. We should be, uh, children should be free. All children should be free. You know, children at the age of 14 can't vote. They can't drive. They can't smoke. But they can be placed in shackles and sedated by the state and put in an adult prison with the sign-off of many NGOs and other people in positions of power that's supposed to be there for their protection, but they only protect them to a certain level and then they're written off in the language of, detainees or offenders or criminals as used so that the public can um, only hear that language and make a decision in their own mind that they must be dangerous and violent, which is not true. I've spent time with those children, um, not not all those children, in Banksia a number of years ago when they were kept in isolation and spent a whole day with those children. At no time was they at threat or at fear. They were children who were clearly traumatised, distressed, Um, locked in solitary confinement unit, that the only way that they could actually express their trauma and what's happening to them was through lashing out. And we know also that since they've been sedated and shackled and taken to the men's prison, that it hasn't worked because they've already demolished the cells of that prison that they're already in. And so we actually need to get them out in the free world and support them so that they can actually work through their trauma and do the healing and move forward. But while we continue to treat children like they're rubbish, they're going to continue to to act outwardly towards anyone that's actually a threat to them or they think that is they are a threat to them. And this is why reform doesn't work. We don't want a nicer cell. We want no cell. No. A prison is a prison is a prison. As a cage yeah. is a cage is a cage. Call it anything you like. You can call it an immigration detention centre. You can call it a youth correctional centre. You can call it a youth detention centre, an adult correctional centre, call it whatever you want. It's a prison. And that's where we must be really clear because the state and those that operate for the state and act as alibis for the state use that language as well. And it's highly emotive language. 
or it's language to, that's a pretense that actually covers up the torture that's being inflicted and perpetrated against all of the everyone that's in those cages. Oh, look, you know, um, the prison industrial complex tentacles is everywhere in every part of the world and because, you know, it's a machine, it's a massive, massive machine and, and, you know, that's created because of racial capitalism. So it's required to have the haves and have-nots and then otherwise um, the economy doesn't work, right, because you need people that's actually targeted and caged so other people can have jobs. You know, one of the biggest things is like, if you think about um, people who don't have a home, like don't have a house, who are houseless, um, and they're called homeless, right? But we have uh, hundreds of thousands of people employed in this country alone to address the issue of ha- homelessness, right? It's called homelessness. Why is all that money to going to individuals to try and find accommodation for people where there isn't accommodation? The money should be used to be building affordable accommodation secure safe accommodation for people, not for other people to have jobs on the backs of those that are, you know, on the streets at high risk of being and are being criminalised and imprisoned and uh, women are being violated and more and more families or single mothers with their children are living on the street. We should be appalled by that and be demanding from governments that housing must be built, but we don't. We actually fund programs which are people to go and support the homeless. Would you like breakfast? Would you like a cup of tea? Would you like lunch? Would you like a shower? Here, I have a washing machine. Would you like your clothes washed? No, I'd actually like a fucking roof over my head, right? As all of us do, to be warm, safe, secure, so that we can flourish into the human being that we want to be and so our children can as well. So, you know, this whole industry, industries that are created because of racial capitalism is a fundamental failure for those of us that that those that are employed are making monies on the backs of. It's never going to change. It's just getting worse. The numbers are getting higher. We see that within the prison system. More and more people are criminalised and pipelined into the prison system. We need to understand who we are as, you know, and I'll talk to you as a, another white person and about how our white privilege, whether, you know, and I, I'm a white I was a white child that was criminalised and imprisoned at the age of 13 and because I was in a very poor area, so poverty was the issue, right? But I didn't and never will experience racism, right, that racial gendered violence. I've experienced gendered violence by the state but not racial violence. So when I um, grew up in prisons because I was in and out of there with my sisters, Aboriginal women, Aboriginal girls, and then end up in the adult system. You could see how violent that system was towards them because of their colour of their skin. So then it's about me unpacking that privilege that I had because I'm white. So I could, for example, and I did this at a rally, a Black Lives Matter rally, where Aboriginal women were talking about the violence that was perpetrated against them and about Aboriginal women being killed in watch houses and prisons. And, you know, they're yelling out at the police about what the violence that they perpetrate and they are at high risk of being shot and killed or arrested, right, and then killed in the watch house or the prison where I stood in front of them and not beside them, in front of them because I know my white privilege, coppers will never shoot me, right? They're not going to shoot me because I'm white. And this is what we have to unpack and learn is what our privilege means and then how that impacts on, in this country, 
Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And it's also about knowing that I need to step aside and hand the platform that I have as a white woman to Aboriginal women, and which I do every day and continue to do every day. And so it's about always checking, checking myself. All right, I'm going to do this. What impact is that going to have on Aboriginal women and girls right now, here and now? And it, it's ongoing work. It's not something that you can do to decolonise yourself overnight. It's ongoing work because we've been socialised to be racist, right, and racist towards First Nation people in this country as colonisers. And we use language and have thoughts that have been given to us by, you know, generations before us. Like sometimes I hear my grandmother's words come up in my head and I think, oh, my God, that is so fucking racist. Holy shit. And it was in my head and about to come out of my mouth. But it's about stopping before you speak and understanding. It's not about asking Aboriginal people how to decolonise yourself. It's not their responsibility. It's our responsibility as white settlers, colonisers in this country. So you find other white people that are doing the work and unpacking the work and having those conversations in an environment where you can have the hard conversations and ask the questions that you might think aren't appropriate and maybe they're not, but in a way that you can unpack it, right? And we have to create those more and more of those spaces. So it's not about, they're not, they're not the conversations about uh, reconciliation. <laughs> that's not what that's about, right? Um, that's a very white-driven campaign by colonisers. This is about doing our own individual work and walking alongside, if you're invited, or behind Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in this country because their, their fight, their struggle is real and I don't think any time in my life I'm going to see land back or anything like that because of the connections that the white colonial invaders that we have to ownership of land, which is very means something very different for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And to even understand that, you've actually got to learn about that because that's where the colonisers get threatened, right? We get threatened like, oh, my God, they're coming to take my house. It's like that's not what it's about. You need go and uh, when I say educate yourself, it's not about Googling, <laughs> like you can't trust Mr. Goggle. It's about speaking to those white people that are already doing the work and the white people who are seen as uh, allies in a, in, by Aboriginal people and, you know, start conversations. So we have, for example, like a book club around abolition, okay? So you could have the same thing about um, being white settlers, colonisers, um, groups, you know, have readings and do the readings uh, and then have, uh, you know, dinner and conversation, unpack that and churn that and learn that and change the way that you operate, the language that you use. It, I'm not going to, it's not easy work, it's hard work. But as a white woman in this country, I'm very much committed to that, uh, to do that work. You know, I have, my grandchildren are all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children. And they already experienced racism at the age of three. It's horrifying um, that they come home and are sobbing um, and so distressed because of the colour of their skin or the colour of their eyes. You know, it starts at such a young age 
that white children are inflicting this violence on other children at the age of three years old. This has to stop. This violence has to stop, you know. Yeah. Yes. I like very much what you said about being invited uh, to be an ally. Um, This is something, you know, in the queer world where you, you can't just claim allyship. It's not it's not something for you to you know mantle yourself with. Um, yes. So yeah, that that's that's a, a something something for us all um, to remember. Yeah, and you, and you have the conversation. The conversations are happening now. They were going off on Twitter the other, last week. I think about you know trans trans people, for example, and the use of language and and language is very powerful and language can be very hurtful and language can be used to violate people. And as someone who's in their 60s now, like to understand non-binary, you know, no gender, et cetera, like that, has been a struggle for me growing up in the world I grew right? There's two genders. We're all socialised to believe that. But the beauty is young people are taking that and removing that and creating a safer world, a bigger world of inclusion for however you want to identify. And I think that's just fantastic. And so. It's about those of us that old are older, not to be fearful of the younger generation. They are leading us, right? Um, because they can, and they they are viewing the world in a very different way, and in a way, like I said, that's more inclusive, and which is beautiful. They're doing the work, right, and uh, and leading the charge, and we need to get on board and not be the blockers, um, you know, to stop th- that inclusion of everyone. You know, and obviously there's there's still the issue of race that's not discussed in those conversations and that's one of the most important things that must happen is the conversation about race. We're um, very much the same age and I feel exactly the same way that you do. I look at the younger people that I'm, you know, lucky enough to interact with and, and work with and the way they see the world the way they are sort of fierce and courageous is like amazing to me and uh, and I love to support them in any way that I can, but much more I'm learning from them. I'm yes. making mistakes uh, yes. and using yes. the wrong language and yes. they are great about correcting you <laughs> yes. in public and, and yes. you say thank you, thank you. Yes. I use the, the phrase preferred pronouns and I got uh, gently and lovingly jumped on to say, no, don't say preferred pronouns, say pronouns. Oh, thank you for telling me. So, yeah, I mean, we we grew up at the same time through the 60s and 70s. Uh, 70s, we were teenagers. And the voice in my head is very much the voice of those people born in the 20s and 30s and yes. my grandparents born two centuries ago, not even last century now, the century before. And the, that received attitudes if you stop and listen you can hear it it's not your voice it's somebody else's voice that's in right. your head oh when it comes over me that's right I can hear I literally hear my grandmother's voice it's like you need to go away like seriously. <laughs> yeah, and, but I understand and I understand it's about that's how the world was I'm not making excuses but it's a context so you know my grandmother had very strong views um in regards to um like the war the the war with Japan, for example, because her brothers were in the war and they were killed. And so there's reasons why and it's about was about when she was alive, unpacking that for her 
and saying, but Nana, that's not how it is anymore, right? And we need to look at that and, and you know, she was very good with that and to understand because it was an automatic thing because of the trauma of her brothers, three brothers being killed, right, in concentration camps. So, and it's about putting the world in context of that and to understand that. But, yes, it's you can hear, you know, your the family members' voices uh, coming up and it's like, oh, my God, you need to get out. <laughs> Go over <laughs> Yes. I'm sure that our grandchildren, they're going to have our voices in their head, which will be a lot better, I think, than, you know, my grandmother. And But, I mean, then when they're our age, the world would have changed so much more as well. There'll be who would know what's going to be. But, I mean, it is about um, allowing people to, as someone with a platform, like I have a public profile, to allow them young ones to launch themselves on my shoulders in any which way they want to, you know, to advance and work towards the abolition of the prison industrial complex. Yeah. 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 And just uh, as we end, do you want to tell us a bit about the Free Her campaign and where people can donate if they can or amplify the message if they can't? Yeah, so I started the um, Free Her campaign back in, oh, my God, when was it? A couple of years ago now, it was in January, um, just before Invasion Day and. Uh, and uh, an Aboriginal man was arrested over in Western Australia for unpaid fines. And a few years earlier, we had the same situation where Miss Do um, was yes. killed in a watch house in Western, Northern Western Australia. She, her family had called the police because she was being assaulted by a violent partner. Um, but when the police went there, they saw that she had on their computer system about uh, $3,300 worth of fines, unpaid fines. And the law then was if you had fines, you get arrested and go straight to prison um, and there's no way to pay it off. And she was arrested, but she had internal injuries that were never checked when they took her to the medical centre three times and she died the most horrific death on a cold concrete floor. And here I am in January that year hearing again another Aboriginal person being arrested. He tried to pay the fines and he couldn't, and he was put in prison. So a few of us on social media said, we need to raise money now, and we did, and we got him out of the watch house. He was released from the watch house that afternoon. And so I just thought, this has got to stop because there's so many women, Aboriginal women, that are targeted because of poverty, and then they get fines, and then they end up in prison. So um, I started the Free Hair campaign, and what I was doing was targeting white, middle white Australia, basically, with people with resources. Um, because we hear all the time and people contact me, what can I do? I'm a social justice warrior, what can I do? It's like, okay, you can donate to Free Her. We'll use all the money to release women, pay their fines or pay their fines up front so they're not arrested and put in prison and send emails to the Attorney General to change the law. So we've raised over $1.3 million now and um, so people continue to donate. The campaign shifted. It's still a free her campaign because the laws have now been changed. So um, you won't go directly to prison now for unpaid fines. Anyone that ends up in a prison cell for unpaid, for unpaid fines have to go through a court, and a judicial officer is the only person that can sentence you. You know, send you to prison for unpaid fines, but you there's a hardship application that you can make. So we're not seeing people go to prison, uh, Aboriginal women go to prison for that. But we we paid, you know, 500 or more women's fines 
um, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. When the law was changed, we shifted the campaign to alleviate poverty. So anywhere we can help families. So, for example, in Western Australia, there's been a number of um, Aboriginal grandmothers or mothers with their children that are on the street, have nowhere to go. So we'll work with organisations in Western Australia and pay for their accommodation for a month or two until they can get into stable accommodation out of those funds that are raised. So it's still about freeing her where she's not criminalised and imprisoned and to alleviate the poverty. And we'll put in the show notes, we'll put a link to donate uh, if you can, uh, listeners. Debbie, thank you so much for talking to me today. Crime Scene is the true crime review podcast where we get to the heart of how true crime stories are told. Subscribe to our feed at robhasawebsite.com slash crime feed. You can follow me on Twitter at Sarah Carradine. Follow Mari at Mari Talks Too Much. That's two, like the number two. And follow Crime Scene at Crime Scene R-H-A-P. Thanks to Will from America for the theme music, Tricky Rice for the graphics, and Scott St. Pierre behind the scenes. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come, find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.